Number one, treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. Number two, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down, never to destroy. And number three, try to root everything you do in love and compassion. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I sit down for meaningful conversations with people who aim to build fewer walls, longer bridges, and bigger tables with their lives and work. My guests want to leave the planet much better than they found it. And I truly hope today's conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. Friends, I sure hope you at this point have had a chance to listen to last week's conversation with Matthew McConaughey. If not, make it happen. For obvious reasons, I got tons of feedback this past week after y'all listened to that conversation. It was so great, and I think you'll benefit from listening to it, so make sure you do that very soon. Also, some of y'all asked which app Matthew uses for journaling. He mentioned in our conversation that he switched recently from writing in a physical journal to writing in a digital journal. So I asked him this morning, and he said that he uses the Native Notes app on the iPhone. So if you have an iPhone, it's the Native uh, app that you can write things down in on the iPhone. I use it religiously for all of my notes, for all of my research, for all of my journaling. I use Notes, uh, and I love it so much. So if you have an iPhone, use the Native Notes app if you want to do what Matthew McGonaghy is doing. And if you don't have an iPhone, what are you even doing with your life? Just kidding. You can have whatever phone you want, but my recommendation and Matthew's recommendation will only work if you have an iPhone. So I hope that's helpful for some of y'all. Onward. My guest this week is absolutely brilliant. And I don't say that lightly. Absolutely brilliant. After spending a year as a Bartley Fellow at the Wall Street Journal, Chloe Valdry developed the Theory of Enchantment an innovative framework for compassionate anti-racism that combines social-emotional learning, character development, and interpersonal growth as tools for leadership development in the boardroom and beyond. So Chloe is now teaching this curriculum all over the world to regular lay people and to people leading companies and in so many different places. And we are so lucky to have her on the show today to talk about treating people like human beings, not political abstractions, talk about criticizing to uplift and empower not to destroy, and to talk about rooting everything we do in love and compassion. Everything feels so fucking crazy right now. And this conversation was a deep breath of fresh air for me. And I hope it'll be the same for you. So let's get right into it. As a reminder, you can anytime and for any reason email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com or you can text me at 646-328-6414. And friends, please join our texting community. I'm paying a lot of money for it and it's a fantastic way to connect. So please text today 646-328-6414. And without further ado... Let's get right into my conversation with the incredibly smart and wise Chloe Valdery. Let's go. So great to have Chloe Valdery on the Let's Give a Damn podcast today. Hello, Chloe. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I am super thrilled for this conversation. And I'll tell you why. So it, it actually, it literally... 
the, the entirety of our conversation uh, is going to be wrapped up right now at the beginning before we even start with, I have a friend of mine who we are uh, not completely opposites politically, but we are not on, we are not, uh, we don't believe a lot of the same things about what, about the world and about mm-hmm. politics and about society, right? But he's a, he's a stand-up dude, a wonderful guy. And we spar back and forth, always healthy, always like, you know, never like, never crazy. And he's the one who, I'd never heard of you until about a month ago when he said, hey, we're always talking about how to do this better. And we're in, I, and he believes the best of me. I believe the best of him. And he's like, you've got to have, check out Chloe Valdery. And he sent me your Twitter and Theory of Enchantment. And was like, check this out. You've got to have her on the show. She's going to help provide some really great context for these huge conversations that were happening. So interestingly enough, we're going to talk a lot about what happened between uh, my friend and I. Like, okay. he, we, we, you know, we're, we, we aren't, we don't uh, agree on a lot of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, I think Chloe can, you know, shed some light on that. So all that to say, I wanted to give some context for how I even, you know, heard about you. Yeah. So, I'm so I'm so excited to have you on the show since he told me about you. And since I emailed you a few weeks ago, when we first put this, you know, conversation on the, on the, in the books, I've been checking out your stuff, watched your incredible, you know, Ted talk and, I am so thrilled for you to help us today and for, I, I, I feel like I'm going to be a student today. I feel like you have a lot to teach me and to teach us because I am, um, are you familiar with the Enneagram at all? Uh, very vaguely. It's, the, okay. it's like the one I can't actually understand. I know Got what it. it is, but I yeah. don't actually get it. <laughs> well, that's, that's not rare. It is kind of weird, but I'm on the Enneagram. I'm an eight. I'm a protector. I'm a challenger. I am like high strung, type A, super extroverted, wants to, I want to spend every single day fixing shit, right? I see something that's wrong and I want to go fix it. And that leads me a lot of times to um, do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, be way (laughs) too polarizing, honestly. And so I'm super excited about this. Uh, Before we get going into Theory of Enchantment, before you introduce what you do, I want to know who you are. So go back as far as you want. And give us some context for who you are, who are the kind of big players in your life, people that influenced you, shaped you, where did you grow up, how did you grow up? Uh, Because usually I find some indications in that story for (laughs) how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I um, always highlight the fact that I grew up in a very... Uh, religiously fascinating environment. I grew up in a Christian home that was very similar to the brand of Christianity, if you're familiar with it, called Seventh-day Adventist. So it wasn't Seventh-day Adventist, but it was very similar in the sense that we went to church on Saturday instead of Sunday. We also observed all of the uh, holy days out of uh, the Old Testament um, instead of the traditional uh, Christian holidays like Christmas and Easter, we celebrated holidays like Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and not only that, we spent our Christmases uh, learning about the history of the Roman Catholic Church and Emperor Constantine um, and some good old fashioned Roman Catholic history. Um, I say I'd like to mention that because that upbringing meant that I was steeped in a culture that was both orthodox and curious. 
And there's a tension between those two things. Um, Orthodox in the sense that, you know, I would be in church every week. I had to observe all the holidays um, very much. uh, It was a mandate in the home. But curious in the sense that it was built upon uh, a tradition of questioning, um, of questioning tradition, of questioning mainstream thought, um, of questioning what had come before. Um, So I think that the tension between those two things has certainly uh, shaped my life and certainly the idea of both uh, sitting in the space and sitting in the tension between orthodoxy and curiosity um, is something that I have uh, had to do as a result of my upbringing. I will also say that that upbringing made me very cosmopolitan um, in the sense that it gave me a perception of history that others may not have gotten growing up. Uh, So for example, if you're five years old and you know, on December 25th, you're learning about Emperor Constantine. Uh, it, you have a very much, uh, I think, wide scope of or understanding of the sweep of history at an early age. Um, and that really made me realize that, like, you know, New Orleans is not the only place that exists. This year is not the only place that exists. I had a very, um, I had a very grand sense of the past uh, and, it, and the way it loomed heavy on my perception of things. I think continues to this day. Uh, Later on in life, I actually went to Rome. That was my first trip to Europe, actually, and experienced a very interesting, um, similar, I think, relationship or inflection point that could be described as a a deep relationship with the past. I encountered the art of Bernini, for example, um, and it just like blew me away. And um, I was very fascinated by the the level of artistry in his sculptures, but also taken aback by the fact that because his sculptures were so ancient, it was as if uh, history was loudly booming at me, remember your mortality. So it was, it was a very, uh, 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 I would say, simultaneously transcendent and kind of depressing experience. Um, but again, that cosmopolitan upbringing was very important. And the last thing I'll say about this upbringing is that because of the tradition of like peeling back the layers and seeing, well, how did this, how did these traditions come to, to be? How did Christmas come to be? How did Easter come to be? Um, I think I subconsciously or inadvertently developed a love of, uh, for, for lack of a better word, a concept of archetypes. So if you're familiar with the work of Carl Jung, who I'm obsessed with, um, I, I sort, of, sort of fell into that pattern of thinking before even discovering that Carl Jung was a thing or was a person, was an actual figure who lived. Um, and I think that a lot of theory of enchantment is actually very much uh, sort of channeling the whole like archetype uh, landscape and the idea of archetypes as being useful to help us navigate the human condition and um, pursue transcendence. So. That's super fascinating. And now I have a million and one <laughs> questions. Holy shit. Um, you know, there's, there's actually a lot of similarities between the way that you grew up and the way that I grew up. Mm-hmm. And I'm ever thankful for, um, for it. So mm-hmm. I, I grew up, I was born in New York, raised in Guatemala. My dad came to the U.S. when he was a kid as an undocumented immigrant. And we ended up going back later on in life. And I spent 10 years there. And then before actually settling down, and I do settling down in air quotes because we've really <laughs> never settled down. I've been married for 12 years and we've lived 
in three different states and 12 different homes in 12 years. Like we just can't find home yet. But before that, between high school and when I got married, I spent six years living out of two suitcases, traveling the world. And there was, but yet I grew up in a very, not this, you know, not this Seventh-day Adventist-like upbringing. I grew up in a very conservative, fundamentalist Christian Mm. background, very fundamentalist Baptist. Um, And as I get older... I see that there, I, I see this tension that you've brought out, right? This, yeah. this, this orthodoxy, right? Or in other words, to put it very simply, like you don't question things. This is yeah. how it is. This is exactly. how things are. You read it in the Bible. You don't question it. It just is what it is. Yeah. And, but yet everything around me, I, I was so curious about it. Yeah. I couldn't, it, it wasn't the same things. Like we did do the traditional holiday. So it's not like a one for one, but there was so many things to be curious about. Mm-hmm. And it left me always wanting to know more. I mean, if you ask my, I'm one of 12 kids. My mm-hmm. parents had 12 kids. And if you ask, my, I was second oldest. If you ask my dad right now, who's the kid that gave you the most hell? It was like, without even thinking about it, he says Nick. It was it was Nick because Nick would never, dad says, do this or believe this, or this is yeah. how things are. And I would always say, why, why, mm. why? Like, don't just tell me this is how it is. Yeah. Show me. Like, let's dive into this a little bit. And to this day, I'm still seeing that in my life. It's why I'm involved in so many different things. You know, I mean, this is a, this podcast started out as a curiosity project. It was, I want to figure out how people are giving a damn in the world. And I want to figure out, and I want to do that and then pass it along to other people, right? And so that's super curious. I love that orthodoxy versus curiosity thing. And it seems like also you mentioned kind of just having this bigger worldview as a result. If you're learning history, if you're learning about Constantine instead of Santa Claus, if if you're learning about all these different things and places, and if you know that this is not the only country, state, right? New Louisiana is not the only state. Yeah, United New States is not, not the only country. Yeah. And, and yeah, right. And, and this is not the only time, right? Yeah. I have a, I don't know if you feel this, but it's not, it's not uniquely American, but there, mm-hmm. it does feel sort of uniquely American. And I can say this because I've traveled the world. Like we're not good learners and our education system <laughs> hasn't People done. say this. Yes. About us. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, it's not even me saying it as a half American. It's like everybody looks at us and says, we have, I mean, we have the, we have, we have the most expensive education in the world. And we Mm -hmm. have some of the, the, we have some of the lowest like benefits as a result of that. Yeah. And so we don't, I find people right now we're living in Nashville, Tennessee, and we're hoping that's coming. We're hoping that's coming to a, you're in New York city, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm in Brooklyn. We're hoping to move to New York next. I've got, we've got three little kids and we want to raise them in New York uh, so we're going to try that next year. We'll see how that works yeah. out. But right now I'm in Nashville and I, I, it's been wild to see how many people that are now my neighbors and friends and in my community that have never really left this bubble. Like they go to the yeah. same place for vacation every year. It's like the Outer Banks in North Carolina or Disney World or <laughs> whichever one is in Florida. I've never been, don't never want to go. <laughs> I think but Disney like, you know, World, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, and they've, they've, they've lived kind of in this three- state radius yeah and that affects how they think how they live the decisions they make what they eat who they engage with Mm -hmm. and so i love as well that's the last thing i'll point out from your sort of like opening statement is it 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 feels like you and i both had an untraditional and un-american if i can put it that way (laughs) upbringing because that's just not what most people are experiencing 
Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know anything about like the aggregate American experience in terms of like travel. I am I am inclined to slightly disagree just because by definition we are Americans and so we sort of we sort of complicate the stereotype. Um, it's also ironic because America has the stereotype of like the pioneering spirit. And to your point, a lot of people in the country do stay where they are. Um, I would say also for me, like growing up, I also like didn't travel so far physically in terms of like, you know, maybe we went to Texas off. We did go to Texas often for um, to, to visit Six Flags, for example many summers which was great so it's not like I, I traveled a lot physically but because of the educational upbringing I did have which I, re- I recognize is sort of uh, probably a bit of an addendum to the uh, official you know educational experience I received going to elementary school high school and college although I will say I went to some very very um, I think really good schools um, it was that extra education I received that definitely expanded my vision and perception of the world. So, yeah, I mean, I think maybe we have to work a little bit overtime and or, you know, uh, better our institutions um, to serve our students better. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a both and. And I already love I'm, I'm, I'm already loving this uh, this <laughs> conversation because you're I'm, I'm learning a little bit more about you. You know, you pushed back rightfully so on, you know, for one, we'll get into this. You're you're sort of one of one of your visions is that we would stop caricaturing and yeah. stereotyping right people because yeah. that that leads to uh this enneagram 8 here i'm pointing to myself <laughs> saying things like you had an, an un-american upbringing which I, I know what i'm saying by that which is like yeah, you're yeah, not yeah. you're not most people but you're right. right i mean america is whether whether we're representing that well or not america is this melting pot of yeah. ideas and people and cultures. And again, we haven't, we, this experiment is not going well in my opinion, but <laughs> yeah. we're that, that it still is who and what America is. And Absolutely, so, yeah. so our journeys do fit in the American journey. It, it just might not be as popular as we, you know, yeah, our representative or, or like broadcasted. It could be that there are a ton of people who are, or not a ton, but I don't know, a decent amount of people who have had these very diverse experiences, which whose stories just aren't broadcasted and we're just not exposed to them enough, but they're like waiting to be found, you know? So we're going to get, uh, in a minute, we're going to get into the theory of enchantment, this, 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 a company and organization and idea that you have, that's become, it seems like your whole life and you're yeah, hella, hella good at it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but before we get there, give us the journey uh give us the journey that led up to it right like how sure. what were the circumstances surrounding you saying okay i've got to do this here's the name here's the idea let's go sure so i went to the university of new orleans and studied um international studies which tracks <laughs> yeah. um international studies concentration in conflict and diplomacy um, graduated in 2015 and moved to New York City because I had a job at the Wall Street Journal. And um, while at the Wall Street Journal, I was really intrigued by this uh, idea that within the realm of conflict and diplomacy, there are all these frameworks that we talk about geopolitically to try to like, you know, combat conflict, whether it's, you know, detente or other such things that have been discussed within the realm of geopolitics. So there are all these frameworks about teaching people how to combat conflict, but there are no frameworks that teach 
people explicitly and expressly how to love. And so I wanted to, I, I, you know, I noticed that, wait a minute, these things are not the same things. <laughs> they're interrelated, but they're not the same things. Um, and so I wanted to see if I could develop a framework that would teach people how to love. And uh, I asked, I asked to sit myself a series of questions in developing the structure of the thesis. And the first question was, if I want to teach people how to love, then maybe I have to ask, well, what are people already in love with? And then work backwards from there. It's uh, in retrospect, I'm realizing it's like the Carl Jung in me that's like yeah. pad- noticing patterns and like seeing if there's something to be derived out of the pattern. So, um, you know, the biggest source of data content that showed me what people were in love with was pop culture. And so at that point, I started to study these massive companies and influencers within the zeitgeist that seem to command um, a, a, a religious-like devotion <laughs> from their fans and from mm. their consumers. Companies like Nike, companies like Disney, influencers like Beyonce, um, to see if there was some common denominator. Uh, And the common denominator that I discovered was that all of these entities and these influencers were creating content where their audience saw themselves and their potential reflected in the content. Um, And this may sound very basic, but it's actually no small accomplishment. Um, You know, we take for granted the fact that Nike has the slogan, just do it. But there's a lot of human psychology like packed into that one phrase. There's a lot of I would say um, the observations of psychologist Abraham Maslow's um, views on self-actualization embodied in that phrase, this idea that if you wear a Nike shoe or if you buy a Nike piece of Nike apparel, you'll be able to overcome anything. You'll be able mm. to just do it. Like, and human beings are very much in search of and pursuit of self-actualization. This idea that almost every Disney movie ever made is a motif for the human condition. It's the hero, imperfect, flawed, overcoming some obstacle, and in the process, becoming heroic um, and, actu- and self-actualizing in the process as well. And finally, Beyonce who says things like who run the world girls and many women see them, (laughs) many women see themselves and their potential reflected in that content. So that was sort of like, Oh, there's, there's like a pattern here um, that I discovered. And I, I decided to call that phenomenon by which these companies created that content and by which people discovered sort of their potential that was like ripe for, um, I think, coming into fruition. I just decided to call that process enchantment. Um, the reason I call it enchantment was for two reasons. Number one, enchantment is already associated with Disney. You know, obviously Disney has like sure. the magical kingdom and yep. um, is known as sort of this enchanted place, as a, a set of enchanted films and stories. Um, but at the same time, I was also watching or excuse me, reading a book uh, by Guy Kawasaki, the former marketing director of Apple, yep. who wrote a book called Enchantment. Um, talked about how Steve Jobs used this concept in a lot of his like marketing and um, defined enchantment as the process by which you delight someone. And it's not as mundane as simply, again, seeing that Nike apparel and thinking that you will be able to overcome any, any obstacle by wearing it, it's as profound as, you know, a child who is abandoned discovering that they have internal worth. It, it runs the gamut in terms of the, the 
um, I think the surface level understanding of it and the depth level application of it. So that's why I picked the term. And um, after I finished the thesis, I worked for a nonprofit for two years, refined it, lectured, uh, came up with three principles <laughs> that this uh, process of enchantment was rooted in. Uh, and then eventually enough people were like, you need to go off on your own and <laughs> go off on your own journey and adventure and establish a LLC. And so I did. Um, and uh, that's what I've been working on for the past two years now. So it's quite the journey, in other words. Like this is not yeah. something that happened overnight. You know, a lot not of people listening, we'll get into the specifics here in a minute, especially those like we're going to talk quite a bit, I think, about those three you know, sort of principles that you came up with that I think are just fascinating. Um, but talk for a second about, there's a lot of people that are listening that are probably have some big idea, some big vision, especially yeah. those that are sort of in the let's give a damn family. They've, they want to go out and do shit. They want to go out and yeah. help and love and fix and, you know, do all these things, right? They want to give a damn. And, but I see a lot of people burning out too quickly because okay. it didn't it didn't come to fruition quick enough mm -hmm. it didn't it didn't it didn't happen overnight mm -hmm. like i'm sure there were plenty of times maybe as you've been building this thing where there where it, it didn't it didn't catch or maybe it did maybe you were one of the the lucky air quote ones where you know that it did take off overnight but this is hard work it's hard work to yeah. come up with this stuff then begin to like really live it out and embody it really get to know the 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 ideas the vision the mission the materials and, and then begin to build a following begin to build people that are that want to be in on this with you so talk about that journey just for a minute before we get into the, the theory of enchantment like how has your journey been building this hard easy what's sort of been some of the barriers as you've begun to build this organization and idea that you're spreading now to the entire world yeah that's a great question i think that um first of all i didn't even you know, the theory of enchantment was really primarily, at least initially, sort of, sort of an academic exercise. It wasn't, I didn't necessarily mean for it to be its yeah, own company. Yeah, you didn't company. know where it was going to go. Yeah, I had no idea that it was going to be its own entity. I had no idea that it was going to be a full, like, practice and training, which it is now. It started out really as a 45-minute speech with three principles, um, with a little pop culture references sprinkled within. Um, and so... Um, I think being pulled uh, and pressured, good pressure, uh, but pressure nonetheless by people who were responding positively to that initial 45 minute speech really uh, gave me the confidence and uh, the courage to risk starting a company. But I, I will say I've had to pivot many, many different times. I had to pivot when I uh, realized that a a 45 minute speech with those three principles is not really a product uh, <laughs> per se. Um, so I had to pivot in actually building out a full curriculum and a full program based upon those three principles. Um, so that was a bit of a product pivot. And then I initially started uh, selling to, I tried to sell to high schools because uh, I wanted to get social emotional learning into the classroom, uh, but specifically for high school students, because that seemed to be lacking institutionally. 
Um, but I've discovered that it is almost impossible to sell to high schools just because of the bureaucratic nature of educational institutions. Pre-COVID, it was a nightmare. Post-COVID, it's impossible. Um, and I had to be um, uh, open to that fact and not just try to ignore that fact yeah. uh, and then pivot again to sell the company. So uh, the, the process of the research in and of itself took time, the process of the refinement took time, and then the process of building it into the entity that it is today took time. And even with the entity that it is today, the target markets have changed, it's different customer segments have changed. Um, but I would recommend leaning into the process, uh, understanding that pivoting is a part of business uh, you're supposed to pivot fast and early if you see that things aren't working out. Um, and I would, I wouldn't relate to, you know, things not working out as a, as an error, but rather as part of the learning process. And if things don't work out, you actually can't learn. So I think it's helpful to, to think of it in, in that way. And of course, you know, be patient. I, I, you know, I'm still very, it's a very young company. Uh, and I'm, I still and will always have to learn patience and I haven't mastered patience, even though I've seen, you know, some successes with the company, but um, I, in order to make this a long-term success, I definitely need to, to master patience. Lots of good stuff in there. I'm reading uh, everything is figure outable by <laughs> Marie Forleo right now. And Very cool. the, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great book. She's a, she's a wonderful human. Um, that does so much for the world. But she, uh, the section I'm reading right now is about this, people are so damn scared of failing. And that yeah. keeps, man, I sometimes just to, I guess just to, just to make myself angry, but also <laughs> hopeful, sometimes I just think about how many, how much, how much more good there could be in the world. How many more great organizations like Theory of Enchantment, how many more amazing projects, art, music, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever it may be, would be in the world right now if people saw those momentary failures yeah. as it's just a speed bump. It's just a fucking speed bump. Like just yeah. keep going. You get over the speed bump and you keep going and that you want those things to happen. You want like, the, you 100% want them to happen. If you look yeah. at some of these people that have had it easy, that inherited a bunch of money or that yeah. got famous on TikTok quickly or whatever, they, they're, I mean, you look at, I was recently watching that mini documentary that Justin Bieber put out about his in his new song Lonely. Like Oh, I should watch Oh my that. god. I haven't, I haven't the, it's that. it's like it's on YouTube. It's just like 20 30 minutes, but mm -hmm. that kid got famous so quickly. Yeah. Maybe the, maybe quicker than anybody in the history of ever. <laughs> and and it almost ruined him. Yeah. Because he didn't he didn't have those failures at first. He got embraced and he just like blew up. And then he had to fall and fail later on, right? Now he's yeah. kind of, I think he's maturing. He's growing up. He's got a family now and everything. But, um, and I was just, while you were saying that, I was thinking about last week's conversation because this will come out next Tuesday. Yesterday mm -hmm. we released my conversation with Matthew McConaughey and oh, his cool. his new book, Green Lights, right? And it's about these, obviously we're chasing it's a, I, I titled it The Art of Chasing Green Lights. His book is, is called Green Lights. Is this a great Gatsby reference? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. So his- okay. I, I actually, I admittedly have not uh, read Great Gatsby. Maybe okay. I, maybe I should. But it's, it's all about the we're, we're just chasing green lights. Like everybody yeah. loves a green light. It means freedom. It means go. It means there's no nothing keeping me from going. But knowing that if there's a green light, then there'll be a yellow and a red light at some point. Yeah. <laughs> right. And there'll be that moment where you are stopped uh, within within your control or outside of your control. And yeah. 
just keep pushing through because it's going to turn green again. Yeah. Right. It's so, also like the like the slowing down and the stopping is a part of life. It's 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 important to view to understand this in an integrated way. And I think especially like the pandemic is forcing us oh, yeah. to you know whether we actually do it or not is a different question. But I think it's forcing us to contemplate the importance of slowing down. So yeah, I I could I could bore you to tears with <laughs> talking about how all of my shit has like accelerated during the pandemic because I yeah. I had time in March when all this happened I lost all of my work overnight I'm self-employed I oh, have wow. let's give a damn and it has multiple facets but I have consulting clients mm -hmm. that that pay the bills and when the pandemic hit all of my consulting clients were you know were things related to public speaking uh, mm -hmm. uh and and live events and production and all that literally it disappeared overnight wow. and so I took the month of the latter half of the, and we had a huge tornado here in Nashville a week before we, you know, got sent home for, you know, the quarantine. And so it was a hard time here. And I took the latter half of March, beginning of April and didn't do any work. And it was a lot of yeah. work, but I wasn't working for anybody else. It was just all me staring at blank note, note, notebook in a pen and just started just thinking through everything all over again. Mm -hmm. And that was that yellow. And then that red light. And that prepared me for the uh, upcoming green light after mm -hmm. I did I did the hard work of okay, so we're in this thing for God knows how long. How do we how do we uh, move forward? How do yeah. we figure things out during this time? So I love that I love that uh, that story and your your um, your advice to everybody because I think yeah I think we just need to like keep we just need to keep going. If you truly mm -hmm. believe it's something now, if it's something that you aren't sure you should even be doing. Of course, stop, stop <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and go to something else. But yeah. if, if you, if you know, it's something that you want to do, like yeah. keep fucking going, like keep going. It will develop as time goes by. If you, mm -hmm. if, if, if you have what it takes and if you put the right, you know, team and ideas and vision together. Um, super cool. Okay. So let's get into the theory of enchantment. I think it's wonderful. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give in, in 15 minutes or so, or, or whenever we get done talking about this, I want you to, in light of the theory of enchantment, weigh in and help me weigh in on this, these last six months, uh, the racial divide, right? Not just the pandemic, forget the yeah, pandemic, yeah, yeah. like, holy shit, like yeah, crazy definitely. stuff is happening. And then also our political stuff right, right now. Yeah. Like it's insane. Very Not much just, interrelated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. but I think to lay the groundwork for your feedback in, in, our interactions in a few minutes. Let's talk about these three and anything else we want to talk about theory of enchantment related, but I want to hit sure. on these three uh, uh, points that you've come up with that you identified in your talk and they've now become an integral part of your curriculum for lack of a better word. So let's, yeah. let's go into them. So, yeah. So theory of enchantment program is uh, rooted in three fundamental principles, probably my first principles. They are as follows. Number one, treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. Number two, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down, never to destroy. And number three, try to root everything you do in love and compassion. Uh, so those, those are the three principles. And then the program itself is the first, is 25 lessons. And the first third of the program, our clients learn how to actually develop a healthy relationship with themselves. They learn what it actually means to be a human being. 
dealing with imperfection, vulnerability, insecurity, mortality, parental baggage, emotional baggage, all the things that we deal with as human beings. The idea is to learn to make peace with that, develop a sense of inner contentment, wholeness, self-love. And then the remaining two-thirds is all about now that you've learned how to be in a healthy relationship with yourself, you can go out and be in a healthy relationship with others, develop a capacity for empathy, practice love and compassion. Um, Our whole premise is that you won't be able to develop that relationship with others if you don't have a healthy relationship with yourself. So that's sort of like the the why of the program. And then the how is we use a lot of pop culture. Going back to the original thesis, we use a lot of pop culture to teach these principles. Um, and for me, like basically everything is pop culture. So, um, so you know, we teach James Baldwin, we teach Dr. King, we teach Maya Angelou, but we also teach John Mayer, we teach Disney films, we teach Lil Wayne, we teach Kendrick Lamar. Um, it's a really fun, multi-generational uh, diverse, multicultural, uh, I'd say, uh, practice and uh, content. And people, in addition to feeling elevated and transcendent, um, after going through the course, they also feel like they encounter a very rich uh, coursework, which is really cool. That's really cool. So let's go through, let's go through um, each one of these, because I have a few questions about each, probably. Okay. Uh, so let's start with number one. Treat, and, 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 and these are so... Here's what I love about these. It all makes sense. Like there's, you can't, you, uh, uh, people might not completely understand yeah. these three ideas and points, but you can't argue with them, right? Yeah. Like right off the bat, you're like, okay, that makes sense. Why are yeah. we all not living by this, these rules? Um, but we're obviously not. If you just turn mm-hmm. on fucking like Twitter right now, you're like, yeah. oh, <laughs> none of that is in on Twitter right now. Um, so let's start. Treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. So yeah. yes, obviously, but why? Like it's so easy to treat people like political abstractions because politics right now, mm-hmm. there's there's such, it seems like on the right and on the left, and mm-hmm. I hate even doing that because people are always like, people try to, I grew up conservative. I am not conservative at all mm-hmm. anymore, but I also have mountains of issues, yeah. <laughs> like literally truckloads of issues with the, the the family that I now live in, right? For one, mm-hmm. I don't want to be identified with most so many of them. And two, sure. it's like, why why are we why are we putting each other in a box like that? But it seems like there's there as I look at as I look at the political points that each side is standing by, is mm-hmm. lauding, is touting right now. Mm-hmm. As a compassionate damn giver, I can't help but l- like land somewhere on the left because sure. it seems like it's more human centered. It seems like it's more holistically pro life, if we want to use that term, right? Sure. It seems like they want the most amount of people to do well. Sure. And the right doesn't. But but then comes the problem of this, these of reducing people to political abstractions. So mm-hmm. how do we treat people? How do we see? people's humanity mm-hmm. before we see their political beliefs? So I think that this is answered by what we do with our clients, which is we have them probe their own humanness. Um, and we, we make our clients become, I think, pretty honest with who and what they are as imperfect beings. Um, people who, as every single human being on planet Earth, 
must encounter and does encounter are challenged by feelings of inadequacy. And this is outside the realm of politics. This is just being human, right? Um, Feelings of inadequacy, feelings of insecurity. Am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? Do I belong? These are basic, like what um, Abraham Maslow called deficiency needs that we all deal with. They include security need, basic security needs like you know food and water, but they also include psychological needs like a feeling of belonging and worthiness and esteem. Um, and so we help, we try to help our clients become self-aware. And this is why uh, theory of enchantment is very much rooted in social emotional um, learning. So the answer lies in first becoming self-aware to understand that like, these are the things that we need that I need personally, that you need personally as a human being to be able to um, have a sense of fulfillment in these areas. Number one, uh, every human being needs that. And when they are not fulfilled, we overcompensate for that lack. We overcompensate for that, for that insecurity. We sometimes develop sense of of self-contempt and then we overcompensate for that. And that can be manifested in a myriad of ways. It can be manifested in different forms of extremism, for example, including racism, but not just racism. But it can also be manifested in other ways that we don't necessarily think of as having political implications. So, for example, if you are uh, a child who experiences abandonment in your your upbringing, uh, let's say your father is no longer in the picture um, and you're feeling a sense of a lack of worthiness and a sense of esteem, and if you if you this if you feel this is overwhelming, uh, you may be pressured to you may you may perceive a local group in your area as being able to fulfill that sense of uh, wholeness for you. And this we see this when a lot of young men gravitate toward gangs. We see this when um, on, on a racial level we see a lot of insecure men joining white nationalist groups. Um, and so in order to actually uh, uphold the principles of uh, caring for people, caring for uh, those who are downtrodden, caring for those who are, um, um, I guess you would say, uh, poor in spirit, requires us to look beyond the caricatures that we place people in um, and look into the psychological uh, and I would say metaphysical aspect of people's lives. And, and that is, that, re- that re- requires a certain amount of love that goes deeper than are you in my tribe, right? And that's why I care for you versus be- believing what I think is the ultimate truth with it, which is the oneness of all human beings. And it's hard to practice that. Um, but I do think that that is what at least I try to aspire to. It's very hard to practice that. <laughs> You know, it it is much easier to not uh, politically characterize people mm-hmm. and to reduce people to political abstractions when you think about that every single one of us are hurt. Yes. And we're all on a journey and we're all in different places in on that journey, on the spectrum, mm-hmm. but we're all yearning to be healed. Right. Yes. Like I saw earlier today, I saw this, I saw a TikTok um, of this guy who was an obvious, like very, very loud and proud Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. And right now, for some reason, and I hate it, I've been trying, I'm trying to like keep myself off of TikTok because half of TikTok is <laughs> just 
Biden and Trump supporters going back and forth, criticizing <laughs> the shit out of each other. And it's just, it's, it's gotten to a really like ugly place. Okay, and he, yeah. he looked up at the camera and was responding to a, 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 um, a, a comment that was left on one of his previous TikToks. And he said, yeah, I think we need to, I think we need a civil war to like fix mm -hmm. this. He said, I think we need to just get rid of them all is what he yeah. said. He said, yeah. they don't, he said, they're something like they're pussy liberals and they don't know how to, they don't know how to uh, do the things we do. We can, we can survive. We can go find water. And he goes, we can move. He, he, he said, we can shoot moving targets. That's what he said. And at first I was like, my first reaction was, holy shit. How does someone yeah. say that out loud for like the whole world to see? And then I was angry. And yeah. then throughout the day, leading up to our conversation, I eventually got to the point where I was really sad for him. Not yeah. sad in like a, you know, just really sad that somewhere along the way, this mm -hmm. man has been hurt so deeply and he's been mm -hmm. so misled in life. And now he's finding, as you just talked about, he is fine out of his hurt and out of his pain and out of whatever has happened to him in his life, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's lack of father or too much father, like abuse in the home or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever it is, he has hurt. He has lived in that hurt for so long that he doesn't care that he just got on TikTok and said, I want to wipe out half the pop. I would be in to wipe out half yeah. the population of my fellow citizens, not of some evil regime across the world, which is still wrong, right. but right. like my people, like my neighbors, if you yeah. vote for this person, I will kill you. Yeah. That's hurt people, hurt people to like case in point, like yeah. exhibit A. And that's what happens when we, and I've done it. Not, I've never, I've never said those things. God help me if I ever do. But, but that man is politically uh, abstractionizing people, <laughs> the other side, yes. right? Yes. To a point where he's like, I don't, I don't care about your life anymore. I will end you yes. if it means my guy getting in power again. Um, and you can't say that. All that to say, let me wrap up. All that to say, <laughs> you can't say that about another human mm -hmm. if you're seeing them as a human. Correct. If you're stripping off the MAGA flag and you're stripping off, you know, support for Biden, if you're taking all that away, you can't look at another person and you're also a healthy and whole human, or at least right. on, on that journey, you can't look at somebody and say, I want you dead and I'll do right. it myself if I have to. Which is why that first principle is so critical, basic, but very critical. And I mean, I'm not surprised, unfortunately, that a lot of rhetoric has, I think, increased to quite frankly, on a genocidal, uh, have, have become sort of genocidal. Um, and I've seen this across the political spectrum. Um, this is why we teach, there's actually a whole host of Disney films um, from the Disney Renaissance between eight, uh, 1989 and 1999, where 10 Disney films came out that are considered to be the Disney Renaissance. Um, and a lot of those films dealt with what happens when um, when people are caricatured, um, this was, this was portrayed in the movie Pocahontas. If you study the song Savages, uh, which is sung both by the Native Americans and by the white men. And you, yep. you have this incredible montage of them both depicting each other as, uh, what their opponents are depicting them as. And it's a very, um, interesting window into human psychology, similar for Beauty and the Beast, which we also teach. Um, because the entire point of the film Beauty and the Beast 
Um, and fun fact about Disney, usually they put the, mo- the, the, the moral of the story in like the first five minutes of the movie. Um, and so, in the, yeah, in the Beauty and the Beast, uh, the, the moral of the story is who could learn to love a beast? Right. And so it really asked this question, which was a question that was very much uh, impactful during the civil rights movement, excuse me, during the civil rights movement and especially during um, uh, or especially animating Dr. King's philosophy um, is, who, is this question of who could love a monster, right? Who could learn to love a beast? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised that we've seen this level of rhetoric, but I think it, uh, I think it really emphasizes how important and critical this work is now, perhaps more than ever in our nation's uh, our nation, the moment that our nation is in right now. It's incredibly important. Okay. This next one, um, this is one that uh, I don't really know. I mean, again, I get it. I see it criticized to uplift and empower never to tear down and destroy. I understand the never to tear down and destroy because obviously that's not helpful in any way. Yeah. But how do you, how does one criticize to uplift and empower? Please teach me, <laughs> Sensei. Well, I think this is in part also inspired by a lot of Dr. King's sermons and writings. He preached that when we seek the oppression to end, when we seek our own freedom, we also seek the freedom of the oppressor. We I believe that the oppressor is caught up in a hell of their own making as well. And we seek their liberation as well. And as much as we seek our own, um, another way to think of it is um, if you were to think of a human being uh, and you were to, um, if you understand that a human being that is insecure overcompensates for that insecurity in bad ways and maladapted ways, then it stands to reason that your job as someone interacting with that human being to ensure that that, or to do all you can to ensure that that bad behavior doesn't continue, you would need to make sure you're not contributing to the levels of insecurity that they're experiencing. So the not tearing down uh, or not criticizing to tear down or destroy is part of not contributing to that insecure insecurity but also uplifting and empowering is a part of not contributing to that insecurity so the opposite of insecurity is obviously security um so you want to do all you can to um make that person that you're speaking to understand that you're coming from a place where you actually care about that person um because people change oftentimes in response to uh, how they are communicated to. So Maya Angelou has this wonderful quote where she says, if you tell a person over and over again, they are nothing, they're less than nothing, um, they will say to you, oh, you think I am nothing? I will show you where nothing is. And they will become mm. even worse than what you have accused them of being. And the moral of the story is that a person cannot develop character unless they are valued. Um, you know, Alex Haley, the author of um, you know, the biography of Malcolm X, also said, find a good, find the good and praise it. And what you appreciate will appreciate. So whether it's whatever you put in will come out. So I think that that, those are all some ideas that help to, uh, I guess, synthesize into the second rule. That is so good. That is so deep. That's so big. Um, we could spend a long time talking about that. I, I love this idea of you know, I could see so many conversations going a completely different direction. 
yeah. if you started out, right? We could be on completely opposite ends of the political, societal, cultural spectrum. Mm -hmm. But if I let that person know, I see you, mm -hmm. I value who you are and what you have to say, let's learn together. Yeah. Instead of fuck you exactly. for thinking that way. How could you? How dare you? Yeah. I mean, if you start out the conversation with, I love you and I see you, you're yeah. my fellow brother, you're my fellow sister. Let's, and, and if, and if when you win, I win. And when I win, you win, let's lift each other up. Yeah. My God, like that conversation is going to go way different. Yeah. It's a totally different conversation. That's yeah. incredible. Okay. Let's move on. Not because I want to, but because we don't have <laughs> all the time in the world. Sure. Try to root everything you do in love and compassion. Again, makes total sense. What if people follow that, I assume also that these are one, two, three sort of in order, right? It seems like they need to be done in order, right? Yeah. In, ter in yeah, terms yeah, yeah. of shifting the worldview, you can't, if you're, if someone is involved in the current uh, uh, heated rhetoric and mm -hmm. they're contributing to the problem instead of being a, an exception to the problem, right. you can't start by thinking, by rearranging your brain and your mind and your heart and your soul to do everything in love and compassion if, you've, if you're still seeing people as political abstractions. Exactly. Um, so this is obviously a progression. How does one, once they're, as they're going through these points and as they're reorienting their lives, uh, their rhetoric, their speech, their thoughts around these three things, how does one, what are some practical ways that someone can begin to root everything they do in love and compassion? Well, the truth is that the third principle is basically the culmination of the first two and the practice of the first two principles ends up being uh, a practice in rooting everything you do in love and compassion. So, so if you do of, one and two, you are doing three. number three is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, practically, I think, again, it starts with probing yourself. Um, Self-love is a critical, critical piece of this. Um, we are hard on ourselves often as human beings, don't give ourselves space for making mistakes or for, you know, not always having, you know, a good day, for example. And so it's important to cultivate an attitude of love first for yourself uh, and being able to give yourself the space to, like I said, make mistakes, but also another way to cultivate self-love, I think, um, is, and I highly recommend that people do this. I started doing this this year is to develop some kind of meditation practice. Um, yes. and the reason for that is very simple, uh, from a biological perspective, our brains are one of the most probably sophisticated organs, um, that exists on planet earth. It's made up of a limbic system, which is super, super, super old. Um, also known as the reptilian system. It's responsible for our fast thinking, either or forms of thinking. It helped us survive when we were evolving in the jungles. Um, it helps us make quick decisions. Um, so we have that limbic system, but we also have the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for slowing things down, executive functioning, thinking things through. It's far younger than the limbic system. Um, but because we... Uh, live in the 21st century, or although we live in the 21st century, we haven't necessarily updated our software system in our mm. heads to slow down. And oftentimes we uh, deploy the limbic system in situations where it doesn't need to be deployed. Not everything is a 
threat of of such epic proportions to um, our, to who we are and, and, and our fundamental existence. So one of the things that helps us slow down and recognize the negative stories that sometimes play over and over again in our head that are part of why we develop insecurity so strongly, a way to slow that down is to start meditating. Because when you meditate, you can just begin to notice the stories that you're telling yourself. You begin to bear witness. And then you begin to develop the capacity to say, oh, that's just a story. I can change it to another story. Right. So I think that's a, a huge component of this because it also helps you to practice that self-love and give yourself the space. And not only that, once you start recognizing that within yourself, when you interact with people, whether online or in the real world, you can begin, I think, to notice that sometimes, or actually, quite frankly, many times, oftentimes, human beings project from whatever story is going on in their head onto you. And so you can begin to recognize that. And instead of responding to the story that they're projecting, you can ignore that and respond directly to the human being. So a person can be really, let's say, I actually had a conversation with someone a couple weeks ago who was like going on and on, complaining about the political landscape. I just met this person for the first time uh, <laughs> and they were clearly stressed out, right? Yeah. And um, just going on and on about the news media and all of this. And I was like, how much news do you consume on a regular basis? And he said, way too much. And I said, yes, I can tell. Yeah. Like I immediately knew everything that he was saying, all the rhetoric he was saying was really a facade for something else that was going on underneath the layers of all of that. And so I needed to speak to that person um, as opposed to the story that he was projecting. And that's a real clarifying process, a liberating process um, to be able to recognize that again, both within yourself and within your neighbor. So that is a, is, is, are two practical ways I would say to practice self-love. Um, and then you can try to do that with, with others as well. This is so fucking good. I love that you started with uh, th that one of the main ways that you see th number three sort of lived out is this self-love. Mm -hmm. I've always been super bad at that. Uh, I, <laughs> we all are, myself yeah. included, yes. But, I, but I've, yeah, I grew up the second oldest of 12 kids. Uh, my older brother, who's uh, wonderful, when he was, when he, when we were, when we were teenagers, trying to help mom and dad with all the kids, like he made a bunch of terrible decisions and, um, and I was, I, I assumed that role because of my personality. I had no problem assuming that role of like the older child, but mm -hmm. I had that thrust upon me. And so I've always been like my MO, my immediate response is to always take care of other people. Mm -hmm. And I have exhausted myself to the point of burnout many times in my life just taking care of people, taking care of people and not taking care of myself. And so right. it's, it's, it's awesome how these are like what you're doing with theory of enchantment is, is pretty uh, close to what, what I've been sort of preaching with let's give a damn. And that is there's three, there's three steps for giving a damn. Number one is you've got to give a damn about yourself first. So many mm -hmm. of us here give a damn and they're like, Oh, got to go out there and save the world. Well, first of all, you can't save the fucking world. Right. So stop never like literally give that up right now. That's that you can't do that. But you've got to start with t giving a damn by yourself. And yeah. that is that self-care, that self-love. Do that hard work first. Do that homework. Do that really, really hard work for some yeah. of us that have been hurt in so many different ways. Then number two is give a damn about uh, each other. 
Mm-hmm. And that is, those are the people that are around you. That's, those are your family, your friends, your partner, your spouse, your kids, whatever it is. The people that you're going to pour into them, they're going to pour into you all the time, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Take, make sure that group is healthy. Yeah. Be- because you're going to need it as yeah. you go to step three, which is then give a damn about others. That's the, that's when these bigger projects that you're going to take on, whether it's, whether it's your main occupation or it's something you do on the side before you can give a damn about the world, Mm-hmm. you've got to do those other two steps or else yeah. you're going to do it in an unhealthy way. You're going to hurt more people than you help and you're not going to get much done, frankly, yeah. because you can't go straight to number three, fix everything without doing that homework first. So I love I love that uh, if you do one and two, you're going you're gonna to automatically already be living out, rooting everything in love and compassion. Yeah, because if you practice the art of self-refinement, then the way you move about in the world will change because the nature of your perceptions will change. That's wonderful. I love it. Couldn't have said it better myself. I'll let you say it. Okay. So let's, let's, okay. So now we've got the theory of enchantment, not all of it, obviously it's big. And I look forward to getting to know this more in the days, weeks, and months ahead. But for now we've gotten sort of a 30,000 foot view who you're about, what you're doing. Now let's talk about some current day shit that's going on. Sure. And I, I would love to get your feedback on things that are going on. So we've got this. Um, let me look at the time. Just make sure we've got time to do all of this. I'll try to not talk as much in these last few minutes. I'll try to synthesize. <laughs> okay. Well, get it all out, and we'll yeah. end. We'll end where we end. It'll be. Yeah. It'll be a natural place to end. But okay. So cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Um, the <laughs> the left and the right do it oh so well. And, yeah. and the right thinks they don't do it and they accuse the left of doing it. The left yeah. thinks they don't do it and they accuse the right of doing it. And both do it super, super well mm-hmm. and far too often. And we fail to recognize, again, it's easy to cancel somebody. Um, and I'm not saying, let me let me also say, there are certain things that we should not have people in positions of power anymore for, sure. right? Like I'm yeah. so fine with us canceling, if you want to use that word, the Roger Ailes of the world sure. and, yeah. you know, people like that, right? You did some horrible things. Uh, you don't get to speak into what we're doing now. You don't get to be in a position of power. But sure. then there are so many things that happen all the time that we just reduce it to a, you did something that I don't like and it might've been a big thing. And mm-hmm. so you're done. Like, oh, or or the, the one that Chappelle uh, gets on all the time, he's like, I did something 20 years ago. I said something. You're not accounting for any growth that I've had since then. You're not accounting for anything in between. You dug up some tweet from 11 years ago, and now you're done. Yeah. That only hurts. That only harms. Mm -hmm. And so speak into how the theory of enchantment can keep us from canceling each other all the time and instead Mm -hmm. seeking uh, places to build bridges where where there are currently huge divides, huge chasms. Well, this is also goes back to the first principle, not treating people like caricatures. Caricatures are snapshots in time. Um, They don't account for the totality of a life, um, which ebbs and flows and changes to Chappelle's point. Um, But also theory of enchantment is very much rooted in a restorative justice framework. I do find it fascinating that folks on the left and the right, quite frankly, who have expressed support for restorative justice frameworks still uh, promote cancel culture. Um, so we teach the redemptive, pro- um, I think it's called the redemptive project uh, with Van Jones on CNN, where he goes to uh, prisons and facilitate, helps facilitate conversations between victims and their offenders um, to really promote this idea of restorative justice, a holistic um, 
sense as opposed to a punitive sense of justice. Um, so that's how we try to teach people to uh, gravitate more toward that vision as opposed to a cancel culture vision. Cancel culture is also, I think, a byproduct of our deeply transactional society, hmm. um, a very hyper-consumerist society. Even the language of cancel culture is very um, consumerist, like you're canceling yeah. the transaction. Yep, yep, um, yep. Contributes to this idea of the this disposability of human beings um so i think there's a cultural piece to it but i do think that there are other elements particularly within art that speaks to the more redemptive restorative justice model um i think that if you're an artist especially of the caliber of someone like kendrick lamar where you're deeply introspective where you're constantly talking about uh you know we teach dna so he says i got power poison pain and joy inside my dna all these things that exists within every single human being, the capacity to do good, the capacity to do evil, both potentials existing at once. Um, human beings are dual nature in that way. So I think that the more we put these texts that are very popular actually, and are very considered to be um, an art form in front of people and say, you shouldn't just consume pop culture passively. You should consume it actively because there's wisdom here. And now that you've studied Kendrick Lamar, now that you've studied, you know, the redemption project, how can you apply it in your own daily life and apply it to how you perceive, how you treat those who make mistakes. You want to create a society, not that is void of accountability, but that gives people a chance to grow. And again, it's so ironic to me that, if I were to tell someone, there, there are plenty of people for whom, if I were to say to them, you know, if I were to explain to them the backstory of an individual, like I explained to you earlier, who experienced abandonment and parental neglect and so gravitated toward a gang as a result, and I explained to them that backstory, there's, there's a massive chance that the person I'm speaking to would have a great amount of compassion for that person. I wouldn't just be punitive in their <laughs> judgments of them. However, if I, uh, you know, gave them, uh, if I just simply said a Republican or a Democrat, depending upon their political uh, views, did X, Y, and Z without any backstory, um, and X, Y, and Z was something they found or perceived to be offensive or a bad thing, they would be more likely to immediately be punitive and just, just no, just end it, just cancel them, et cetera, get them out. And so there's a disconnect. Um, and our culture, much like we are as human beings is a duality. And so, um, I, I think it's a challenge, but I think it's a, it's a worthy challenge. I think it's a winnable challenge to get people to think more in the restorative justice paradigm than in the, cancel culture paradigm because we already have stories from our culture that teach it i love the idea of restorative justice i'm a big uh, brian stevenson fan as everybody should be um and it's funny you brought up van jones because he's been one of the people that i've thought about this past week right so you know mm -hmm. right after the election um uh, right, or sorry, actually, right after the 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 media called it for Biden, mm -hmm. um, you know, he had this like there's this clip that went viral. Maybe you've seen it of him like three minutes. You know, very heartfelt. Like, yeah, I did see that. Yeah, uh, you know, our we can like it's easier to be a parent tonight. It's easier yeah. to be a dad tonight. We can tell our kids that decency matters, that integrity matters, that character matters. It's a wonderful clip, right? And yeah. then. Like on like like fucking clockwork, you know. All of a sudden, there's all these people on the left posting pictures of him with 
you know, the the Trump's kids, right? Or yeah. different people in the Republican, you know, political space. And there's even one mm-hmm. of him in the in the Oval Office with Trump and a bunch of other people. I don't even know the context of it, but mm-hmm. they're trying to probably the can- first to act, ironically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think I think it was I think it was that photo. Yeah. And and all of a sudden it's like, no, this guy can't be on our side. That's so because, ironic. <laughs> because he has stood he has he has stood side by side to these these evil people, right? Yeah. And I don't agree with the this current administration in almost every single way. Right. But but all of a sudden it's like let's try to cancel him because he has right. stood side by side to them. It's so It's it's ironic on a meta level because again, Van Jones has specifically been active with this administration in yep. getting this administration to pass restorative justice measures with regard yep. to the prison system. So it's it's like it's a lack of, you know, I think vision on the part of these people who who tweet about this and yeah it's like it would be almost hilarious if it wasn't also sad yeah no it's <laughs> definitely more sad than it is hilarious yeah. it's like oh, I want to laugh at how funny this is but no it's not funny yeah it's actually pretty terrible um okay let's spend the last <laughs> few minutes on let's lift the, the- spirits of the people <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, we're not actually we're not there yet um because I want to talk about the I want your sort of uh now that it's in it's not hindsight yet but the but some really tumultuous times are in hindsight at this point You've got mm-hmm. George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all these crazy things that happened during a global pandemic right mm-hmm. I, I'd love your take on who or what you've seen done well in the last few months <laughs> versus who or what you you've seen done poorly in the last yeah. few months because I'm frankly you know, it's been a hard few months. Like I've been out there, you know, I've been out there protesting. I'm mm-hmm. obviously against, I'm, I understand 100%. Like I truly understand why people loot and riot. And okay. I understand the overflow, the angst and the anger. Yeah. And although I don't want to participate in it, I understand it. And I've <laughs> yeah. been out there marching. I've, I've marched a lot and I've, I've screamed a lot and I've yelled a lot. And I've almost been arrested several times this past summer for, you know, being in the middle of all that, demanding justice from, frankly, you know, people in power that were not willing to listen. I mean, uh, 250 of of my fellow Nashvillians were arrested this summer alone uh, because they were protesting all this shit that was happening. And we have a bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest in our Capitol mm-hmm. building. And we asked for uh, that to be removed. Those are two demands were that to be removed because, hello, it should be removed. And yeah. two, let's have a conversation with Governor Bill Lee about these matters and how we can uh, properly, responsibly defund the police so we can give more money to these other programs. And he refused to do that. Instead, he, 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 they, spent over, they spent millions of dollars this past summer uh, on overtime for state p- police to mm-hmm. treat us like shit and arrest uh, a couple hundred of us over the, you know, over the course of the summer. So, so much has happened. And yeah, I'll stop there. How do you? How, how have these last few months been for you? Uh, you know, yeah. a, 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 a strong black woman living in America, watching all of this happen, and then also trying to get people to, uh, you know, to look back at your TED talk. How to love? How love can repair social inequality? You know, yeah. most of us are seeing no love can't do that. We need to go take it. We need to go yeah, take yeah, it yeah. because those in power aren't going to give it to us yeah. uh, without us taking it. So, classic. Um, (laughs) I will say that I did go to 
um, the protests in Brooklyn. And because my roommate was very much uh, consistently, both my roommate and I are very much fans of Dr. King and we studied Dr. King and teach Dr. King. And he wanted to see if he could live the Kingian way uh, in the protests. And my, my apartment actually became a meeting ground for uh, activists within Black Lives Matter for like three months. Mm. And so I was privy to some of the conversations that were going on between, you know, individuals who are mostly among or around my age. So like millennials and um, met a lot of different interesting folks. Um, I would say that the difference between what, in my observation, the difference between let's say the civil rights movement generation, King, Lewis, uh, especially who just passed. Um, and our generation is that the Kingian generation knew what they were fighting against, but they also knew what they were fighting for. Mm. And it would, and it was unclear what we were fighting for. We knew what we were fighting against. We knew we were fighting against police brutality uh, and racial injustice, but we did not know what we were fighting for. And I think that because there was a lack of a, a, a vision that was um, rooted in the transcendent and could be articulated um, uh, across the board, I think that that was a challenge and ultimately... I think ultimately, as long as that is the case, that will, that will, uh, I think, uh, restrict the movement. I also think that because Black Lives Matter is a decentralized organization um, and because anyone where you could wear, you could hold up a sign that says, fuck the police, uh, Black Lives Matter. And you could be another person who holds a sign that says we need to love one another, Black Lives Matter, and both are representative of Black Lives Matter, which sends... Um, a confusing message to folks who are trying to figure all of this out. Um, so that's another challenge. Um, finally, I'd say, I think, especially when you speak to, this is especially true when you speak to uh, poor Black Americans, um, and even if you look at, you know, our Black council members here in the city of New York, um, the rhetoric of defund the police as opposed to reform the police was very problematic. Uh, and not to get too political, but we even saw this affect Democrats losing seats in the House. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the lack of precision with regard to the language and the rhetoric used uh, pay, played a role. And that was all because we didn't know what we wanted. We knew what we were against, but we didn't know what we wanted. And the final thing I'll say, maybe not. Second to last thing yeah. I'll say, <laughs> second to last thing I'll say is we need to reform the police. The majority of Americans are actually pro-reforming the police, especially when you use that language uh, specifically. So that's a good thing that we should like, you know, someone should, some political class should like take that and run with it. But um, so that's a good thing. But I will also say that it's important to remember that we are the police. Like the police come from our communities and our neighborhoods. It's like mm. the police are our family members. Wow, yeah. Like yep. all of a sudden this year, not all of a sudden, but it seemed as if we, many of us were somehow, this goes to principle one, um, it became a thing as if like the police were like aliens from outer space and not like from our communities and our sons and our daughters and our sisters and our cousins and our mothers and our fathers. Uh, and so part of uh, police accountability, uh, if you want police accountability, it actually requires that you care about the police. And so the two are interdependent. Uh, we teach, <laughs> this might sound funny, but we teach the Lion King um, in Theory of Enchantment. We teach what the circle of life is actually about. When Mufasa teaches his son Simba, that we are interdependent. 
We are all connected in this giant circle of life. That sounds very lovely and fluffy when when seen through the prism of a Disney film, but it's actually quite serious. Um, And we need to realize just as we preach restorative justice um, and just as we preach um, having a less punitive system, it goes both ways. We can't be selective in how we approach this. The fact of the matter is that, um, so when I went to the protest, I actually held up a sign that was also from a Kendrick Lamar song. Um, And the sign said, a fatal attraction is common and what we have common is pain. And Mm. it's from one of my favorite uh, Kendrick Lamar songs, Poetic Justice. And it's like, yes, we are as civilians accosted often by the police and, um, you know, experience PTSD because of those, because of those physical, uh, you know, offenses. And at the same time, police officers who encounter violence and crime and put their lives on the lines to stop that also encounter PTSD and also don't have usually the resources to, um, you know, get therapy or get healed and take, and take that PTSD right back into the field um, when they're on the beat. And so what we have is a case of mirror images. What we have is a case of people who are broken and uh, traumatized, like crashing into one another. And we are finding it very difficult to be able to realize that because because one of us is wearing a, a uniform and the other isn't. This is why, you know, ultimately when COVID is over, I'd love to put together like an art exhibit that's a part of Theory of Enchantment that actually has like visual images of people side by side uh, that you would assume were enemies. But if I told you, and maybe they are, but if I told you their backstories, you would actually see that these two enemies who are sworn against each other are mirror images of each other and experiencing the same kind of pain and the same kind of uh, trauma and dealing with it in bad ways. And so I think that we need healers and I think that we need more psychologists <laughs> um, and sociologists, but but not separate from the police. I think that that, that work also needs to be brought into police uh, departments as well, because in as much as the civilian population need to, needs to heal, police officers need to heal as well. So. Mm. I wish we had another hour just on that <laughs> because I I think there's a lot more. Maybe we'll do another one of these sometime. Um, sure. Like I I think there's I, I interviewed Alex Vitali. Do you know who that is? Does that name it sounds about? familiar, but I'm not sure. So he so he's actually a, a neighbor of yours there in Brooklyn. Uh, okay. He's a professor, and he wrote a he wrote a book called The End of Policing. So he mm. he 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 gives a very compelling argument for abolishing the police. Um, and what that would look like, what a world mm-hmm. without what we know, obviously we're not saying abolish protection, but yeah. abolish what, what we currently, the, our current, uh, system of policing mm-hmm. and the good that that would do. I, I, when COVID is all over, one of my, uh, I mean, we guess we could do it in this age. It's really easy to get people together online, but I think there, I want to, I want to be part of a conversation at some point where we have these different views, the abolish, the defund, the reform, mm-hmm. because I think, I think it's somewhere in there, right? Like yeah. I think it's, it's somewhere in there, the answer. I understand the abolish the police argument. I mm-hmm. understand the defund the police argument. Mm-hmm. And I understand the reform the police argument, especially when you go back to the theory of enchantment and you, and you stop uh, uh, caric- caricaturing people mm-hmm. and, and stereotyping them by their work uniform yep. instead of remembering that they are 
our brothers and sisters and neighbors and friends. And they put that uniform on and go to work. But at the end of the day, they're taking all that shit off and they yeah. do stuff with us and they hang out with us and they're, they're part of our community. And um, gosh, there's so much to learn there. But we are out of time for now. Yeah. This is super fascinating. I think you're amazing. And I'm excited to you know continue to get to know you and your work in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Before we sign off, do you have any, what, what do you want people to go look for after this? Where are you online? Where's Theory of Enchantment online? Yeah, so check out theoryofenchantment.com. Uh, we primarily provide all of this training to business clients, but also individual consumers um, as well. And especially if you're looking for a very robust anti-racism program to bring to your businesses, highly recommend checking out theoryofenchantment.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at theoryofenchantment and on Twitter at Enchant Theory. Because they only have 15 characters on there. Exactly. Or else you would have the whole <laughs> damn thing. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. My friends, I truly hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Chloe Valdery. I'm such a huge fan of her work and wisdom. Thank you, Chloe, for joining us today. Visit letsgiveadam.fm for links to her website and social media and all of that. And while you're on letsgiveadam.fm, you can sign up for our email list and you can also listen to the other 180 podcast conversations we have there. Seriously, friends, thank you for listening. I'm honored and humbled and blown away that so many of you come back week after week after week to listen to these conversations. This show is edited and produced by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Sound Off Studios. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family. And again, you can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.fm or text me 646-328-6414. Sending love and peace to each one of you. Stay safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.